Sounds great. Three. Welcome to the High Reliability Podcast, presented by Goslin Martin Associates. I'm your host, Peter Martin, president of Goslin Martin Associates. The High Reliability Podcast is focused solely on the healthcare facility management professional, and it's sponsored by the Career Hub. You can link to the Career Hub off the Goslin Martin Associates main webpage. If you haven't checked it out, please do so. Today, we welcome Gary Scott to the show. Gary is Vice President, Hospital Services at the University of Vermont Medical Center in Burlington, Vermont. Gary has been a healthcare facilities management professional for about eight years now. Prior to that, he worked in various facility management roles for numerous companies, including the Tennessee Valley Authority and the Southern Company. Gary is also a board member for the African Children's Mission, and he has been performing missionary services in Uganda since 2009. Gary has his BS in mechanical engineering, and he has a Master's of Business Administration. Gary, welcome to the show. Thank you, Peter. I'm very excited and glad to be here with you this morning. Thank you. Thank you very much. Gary and I are now, um, so it's Monday, January 25th. We are taping at 5.30 Eastern time. Gary wins the award of being the earliest podcast that I've recorded thus far. So if we sound a little tired, uh, that's probably why, although... Gary, you sound uh, you sound like you're wide awake and knowing your schedule. I'm sure you've been awake for a while. Yes, I've been up since three thirty, Pete. And you know that I'm an early bird. I'm always um, always here very early. <laughs> three. Th- do you? Um, so when you get there at three thirty in the morning, what's it like? And how much? Ma- how many hours of work can you accomplish at three thirty as opposed to coming in at say maybe six thirty? So actually, I'm up at three thirty. And I'm here. I'm here about five. Nice. So every day I'm here at five at my desk and um, I'm here until about um, four thirty or five in the evening. And so the reason I get here early is because from from five until about eight o'clock when my actual calendar begins, calendar activities begin, uh, I have a lot of time to get things done. Personal things. People email me throughout the hospital every every Monday, Wednesday and Friday. I send out hospital-wide communications in terms of hospital operations update to the entire 8,000-plus employees here at UVM Medical Center. And I get a ton of feedback and emails from everyone. So when I come in in the morning, it allows me to answer Mm -hmm. those hundreds of emails personally from all of our employees. Excellent. And, you know, I find, too, like you, I'm an early bird. You're a little bit earlier um, than I am, but it's just the most productive part of the day. Uh, for me. Absolutely. I totally agree. I can get so much more done. Nobody is here. I guess I think the next person gets in around 630 or 7. So that gives me at least an hour and a half to be alone by myself, get my coffee and get my day started and trying to get everything lined up, ironed out and um, just get a few things done before people start to walk in the door. And, you know, it's it's interesting. I, I like it earlier, too, because there's definitely a different vibe uh, early than later. It's almost in some ways when everything's dark and quiet, it's just much more peaceful. Even at a hospital, I'd imagine it is, you know, right. um, and when the chaos <laughs> Absolutely. begins. Absolutely. I think I think the only thing sometimes I run into is when I when I come here a little bit early, like I did this morning, uh, yes, crew, my EVS crew was cleaning the carpets and they had the, the blowers out there blowing. So <laughs> Other than things like that, typically nobody is here. It's very quiet and and, and it's very peaceful. Yes. Yeah. You, you need to find those peaceful moments, um, which actually transitions into a little bit to the our first question. So, Gary, as you know, 2020 was a tumultuous year from every, for everybody. So when you're considering the events of that year, from the racial disparities that were seen in COVID to the outcry for racial justice, how have you been impacted as a black man and as a healthcare professional? Well, Peter, I think um, just being honest with you, uh, I think from a healthcare professional standpoint, just seeing the, the disparities between uh, the number of black and brown people who were getting the getting the COVID virus, as well as the number the percentage of those who were dying from the virus, was a little concerning. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, from a healthcare standpoint, we, we work um, with our executive leadership team, our board to try to figure out how do we address those disparities. And so um, 
And you find out a lot of a lot of disheartening information in terms of how people of color feel when they come to the hospital. So it's almost as though in every aspect of our lives, uh, even in healthcare, um, there, there are just disparities. You know, from from describing our pain level and not being believed um, to to just just the overall healthcare experience. I think it's just very different for black and brown folks in, in this country or it has been in terms of being a black person in this country um, and going through last year. I can tell you that, that last year was probably the toughest year in, in my life. And I think. Um, capping capping the year off or starting the year off for me was the the George Floyd incident. You know, that made me question everything about about myself, about my faith, about what I believed, about about God, about right and wrong, about America, you know, seeing seeing someone uh, kneel on a man for almost nine minutes for me was just um, very painful to watch as an American, as a, as a proud American, as a as a son, brother and grandson of, of men who served and fought for this country. Um, I just felt so disheartened, so, so much pain because I just couldn't see myself as a human being, as a human being doing anyone like that, where you're so cavalier, you have your hands in your pockets with your full body weight on another man's neck. And um, it was very, it was very painful to watch. Uh, And then the reaction by um, America, the, the political, how we politicized it as opposed to being Americans and humans and coming together uh, as humanity. Uh, we politicized that that event and we made it out of a Republican versus Democrat or a blue lives versus black lives or a black versus white. And it's just so it's so disheartening. I think at this time in our country, we're the most divided we've ever seen. But I'm hoping I still have hope in America and this country. I love this country, uh, best country in the world. I wouldn't go anywhere, wouldn't live anywhere else. Uh, I, I love this place, but we have a long way to go. And uh, as I said, everything about my faith, everything was questioned last year because I just couldn't understand uh, how we can be so divided at a time like this. In 2020, how are we still so divided? And so so it was it was a very tough year, capped off by a lot of personal problems and issues. You know, COVID hit a lot of folks in my family. Um, uh, hit me, you know, my, my wife and um, just, you know, the, the, the isolation, not being able to go anywhere and not being able to travel. You know, Pete, 20, 2020 was probably the worst year of my life. Mm. Wow. Well, uh, well said. And I hope that, you know, 2021 is better. And I, you know, we always have hope and I agree. Let me ask you a question though. Can I follow up on something you said there, Gary, which you talked about, um, you know, being a healthcare professional and a person of color when you're working in the hospital, when you're, you know, I know you're very visible style. I know that you're out there, um, you know, very visibly do other people of color approach you when you're working? (laughs) You know, absolutely, because and and you know we're, we'll get into that as well when you ask me some of the questions about what's surprising to me in in healthcare and stuff like that. I mean, um, absolutely, people people are people don't see a lot of people of color, so so workers don't typically see healthcare professionals and EVS and maintenance personnel typically don't see a lot of people of color in the executive or the administration um, offices. Uh, positions or whatever. And um, so, yes, people stop me. People tell me they're proud of me. They're proud to see me in this position and that people want to talk with me and meet with me and just tell me about their experiences here and and everywhere else I've been in in these type of positions. So absolutely, I I think people are are happy to to see me for the most part. People of color are happy to see me for the most part. They stop me all the time. They, They small talk with me. But also people in general who just work in my organization because I'm new, uh, they stop me and just talk to me. And I, I really enjoy that. I, you know, I'm a people person. Uh, I love the, the interaction. I love the, the socializing with, with the folks that I work with on a daily basis. And I love um, I love being able to ask, uh, ask and answer personal questions about 
them and, and give them answers about myself. So I guess to answer your question, yes, people of color stop me all the time, request meetings with me uh, to share their experiences. And many of them don't complain. Many of them just are just looking for mentors, people to help them navigate their careers, because most of the time they haven't seen anyone that looks like me that they feel comfortable to go mm-hmm. and talk to. Interesting. When um, so Gary um, and Gary, feel free to obviously jump in. Gary, as they said in the introduction, um, Gary transitioned into healthcare. We've known Jack and I have known and worked with Gary since 2014. Um, we were working at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, on a director role, and Gary was a manager at the time there, and just pretty much starting to embark in his healthcare career. He'd been there, what, a year or two after having spent more than 20 years in non-healthcare industries. Gary, did you, in grant 2014, seems like an eternity ago now, especially when you talk about everything that happened in 2020, but when you transitioned into healthcare from your prior facility management positions, will be with the Tennessee Valley Authority or with the Southern Company, is there a difference? Did you feel a difference being a person of color working in those industries and then transitioning into healthcare, was there a difference or is it the same experience? You know, Peter, being honest with you, it's pretty much the same. Um, we, have, we have a long way to go when it comes to race relations in this country. And just like now and even back then in 2014 and, 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 and many of the times when I was in Southern Company for my entire career there, Typically, a lot of the times I was the first, the, the, the first African-American in this position or the only African, African-American in the room. Now, I'm not going to say it was prevalent, as prevalent as it is, as it has been in healthcare, but it's pretty much the same. I think there are there are challenges when it comes to equity, diversity and, and inclusion in many uh, sectors of, of the American economy, whether it's healthcare, transportation, utilities, Whatever it is, I think there there are always uh, challenges, and I think I think honestly, honest, be, you know, being honest with you, Pete, from what I've seen in my career, I think we as as organizations we sometimes make excuses about not being able to find qualified people of color or qualified minorities, and and what I tell my my peers is that we have to be intentional. You 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 can't just post a job and say, well, we can't find any qualified minorities. We're looking, we want to, but we can't find them. It's all about being intentional. You have to go to the to the HBCUs, to the to the um, uh, historically black colleges and, uni- and, and, university- and universities. You have to go to the black societies. You have to go to the black sororities and fraternities. And you have to actually be in, you know, uh, intentional about trying to find qualified minorities because they are there. They are. They are there. I know many. I, I know many qualified uh, minorities, whether they're Hispanic or whether they're Indian or black or whatever you want. Age. I know many. But a lot of the times um, we, we, we make excuses and just say it's too difficult. We can't find it. And I, and I, I think we've got to do a better job of doing that. Yeah. Yeah. I w- it's interesting. We are increasingly getting that question when I say we um, from a recruiting standpoint when we work with organizations um, regarding people of color or or even females. I mean, as you know, in, in healthcare facilities management, um, male-dominated, not a lot of people of color, not a lot of um, females. And we, as I said, we are increasingly getting that question. I tell people all the time, you know, if, um, if you're looking for a career in healthcare facilities or if there's anything we can do, feel free to reach out because... Um, there's a need. I mean, you know it that you're that you're that mid-career professional who's perfect because you got a long runway in front of you, you got experience, but there's a glut of people um, and somehow hospitals have to run and without people they can't. So I would encourage anybody, whether it's through Gary or even just to contact us here, um, feel free to reach out because we need people. We need good people because these hospitals uh, serve an important function and there's frankly not enough people, good people who are coming into the field. Absolutely, Peter. I, I couldn't uh, couldn't agree more. Couldn't have said it better. And 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 in terms of for me, I have been since I've been in healthcare, I've developed and grown. I've just made it a point to grow uh, minorities uh, and women, but also um, 
you know, young white males who are who are talented. And because I don't I don't want to give you all the impression that that I'm just focused on minorities and women or, or non minorities uh, and not non minorities, but I'm not. But as a black American, as a black person, I do have uh, I do have a record and an emphasis uh, of, of trying to grow and develop qualified minorities for the industry um, because I think we need that. So I've, I've left a, a legacy behind me of people that I've that I've tried to grow in the facilities arena, whether it's at UAB or Children's in Dallas and even here, even though I haven't been here long, I've, I've already started to begin meetings with young uh, people uh, of color, women, as well as um, non-minorities. Yeah, no, it's excellent. You you have made an impact. You do make an impact. And just, you know, for clarification, um, Gary began up at UVM November, right? Your first day right around Thanksgiving. Um, so he's been there for what, two months now? Yeah, November 16th was my first day here at the at, physically at the hospital I had to come up a week earlier in quarantine so i came up a week earlier uh the hospital already had me a laptop and everything that i could work with from the, from the hotel so I, I came up november 9th or some, somewhere in there began working around that time and the first day physically on the site was november 16th and i've uh, been here since then off and running so what are the things that i thought was interesting um so Gary transitions into healthcare at UAB, 5 million square feet facility, more than 1,100 beds. Not your traditional jumping into healthcare when you don't have healthcare experience. Typically, you're going to start someplace a little bit smaller. What was that like for you coming into healthcare with that massive academically based medical institution that's got a university and medical component? How, how, how did you do that? So... Imagine, imagine you've heard the saying drinking from a fire hydrant, right? Yes. You've heard that. Imagine standing at the bottom of Niagara Falls <laughs> <laughs> and trying to and trying to swallow every drop of water that's coming from Niagara Falls. <laughs> so that's how I would describe entering into into UAB. UAB was a was a massive, massive hospital, academic medical center, the largest employer in, in the state. Um, the, the pace was just uh, unbelievable. The demands were uh, high. Expectations were very high. The demands were very high. The politics were unbelievable out of this world. And I think I, I wasn't really expecting so much politics when it comes to uh, taking care of patients. But, um, you know, the, the different reporting structures, having having responsibility for the hospital in terms of facilities, but reporting down to the campus side because of that's the way they, they, they do things and having these very um, uh, blurred lines of, of reporting, um, the, the, the budgets, having several budgets you've got to manage, the utilities being on a monthly basis. I don't even want to quote you how much we pay in utilities on a monthly basis, having to watch those things. And so, you know, um, uh, have the, the customers, being such a large hospital, you have customers everywhere and um, everybody is calling you. And so for me, it wasn't a difficult transition. It was a lot to learn. Facility, The facility side came very easy to me because I had been doing that for a while. It was the, the healthcare stuff you had to learn, all the joint commission, all the, the protocols you have to follow in order to be safe and keep patients safe at a hospital. That was, uh, you know, initially... A challenge because I had to learn those things, but it, it really wasn't that hard once I once I got into it. But I, you know, it was it was a huge organization, forty two ORs on the main hospital, sixteen ORs at a, at a hospital right around the corner, less than two miles away. Total of two point two billion in revenue just from the ORs, and so um, you you've got you've got pressure, pressure, pressure. Things are breaking. Things are happening here and there. And you don't have time to to wait. You can't leave rooms blocked. You can't leave equipment down. People are calling, requesting your services for all kind of things, even things that may not report to you. or may not be your responsibility. People still want to get those things done. And so you, you have to be able to get in there and uh, stay away from all the politics, all the noise and focus on taking care of patients and keeping patients safe. And as and and the way you the way I did that was focused on just taking care of my customers. Mm. Did you have any mentors there? Did you have anybody to help you navigate that political environment? 
Absolutely. I, I had a I had a guy, a guy named Al Marotti. Uh, he taught me some of the most valuable lessons um, that, that I that I've ever learned in healthcare, And um, I'll never forget those lessons. And basically, he taught me how um, the, the politics and, and that fighting with your customers is a losing battle. So telling your customers what you're not going to do, what's what what's not your responsibility is just a losing battle. These people are trying to take care of patients. Your facility is distracting them. Whether it's your responsibility or not, you 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 talk to your customer, find out what their needs are. And then if it doesn't re- re- report, if it's not your responsibility, you just say, OK, thank you very much. We'll take care of it. And you take it and hand it off to your, your peer. Typically, at the time, my peers were EBS and, of course, Biomed. A lot of the times we would get calls for biomed equipment. And instead of me going back and forth with the customer, we would just say, yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. We'll take care of it. And then we would take it and just transition to the biomed team and, and, and made it seamless. So I, I think um, one of the most important lessons Al taught me, he said, Gary, you can be the best um, facilities manager, director in the world. But if, the, if your customers, if these clinicians don't like you, if they don't think you're taking care of their issues, you're not going to be successful. And so I've never forgotten it. And so a, a pillar, one of the pillars of my success or one of my leadership principles is, is customer service. I've got to take care of my clinicians. I, I've got to ensure that my facility is not distracting them from taking care of patients. So if that means leaking toilets, holes in the walls, floors that are not um, uh, repaired, sinks that are leaking, windows that are leaking, roof leaks, whatever the case may be, I need to make sure that my customers have no distractions so they can take care of patients and take care of them safely. You know, that is probably um, that lesson that Al taught you, you know, as, as I was listening to you talk, it's probably the most important thing that you can learn. I mean, I was thinking back, you know, I was working in construction project management before transitioning into healthcare, um, you know, PDC work. And, you know, just thinking back as I was listening to you, like when you're working in construction, say you're working for a CM uh, construction manager, you know, you're around a table with architects, engineers, tradespeople, very different type of environment, a lot of straight talk, a lot of yelling occasionally, um, very much driven schedule and budget and all of that stuff that comes into a construction project. And then, you know, I remember having to learn that transition into healthcare project management. You might be sitting with a nurse who knows nothing about healthcare or construction, I should say, knows a lot about healthcare, knows nothing about construction, nor doesn't really need to, just wants to be benefit the patient. And that was a lesson that I had to learn too. You know, you, you, your audience is different. And you always have to find a way to make them happy because that goal of patient care is why you're there. So I remember that, you know, as you were talking, that was a transition that I had to make away from that world into the clinical world where you're driven by patient care and making the right decisions for them. So that I I think Al was probably straight on for you with that, huh? Yeah, I I think Al, Al, as I said, you know, some of the some of the most valuable lessons I learned was from that guy. And as you said, you know, Pete, when, when you're sitting when you're sitting in a in a room of clinicians and you're working on a an ICU upgrade or renovation or whatever, um, you know some of these people don't understand the construction talk. They don't understand the, mm-hmm. the deadlines, the time, the design, the planning, the mm-hmm. SDs, the CDs. The D, they don't understand all of that. All they know is they have a program that they need in order to take care of patients, and what they expect from you is to deliver that. So you have to sometimes fill in the gaps of things that they might miss. So one of the things that I like to, to, to include, one of my pet peeves is, um, is ensuring that we deliver quality, quality, high quality um, construction projects. So most people think about construction, you think about scope, schedule, and budget. But for us, or but for me, everywhere I've gone, of course you include those things, but I also include three other things. The first thing I, I include is, is so in addition to scope, schedule, budget, the, the construction area, whatever it may be, project, it has to function according to how the clinicians need to use it. It has to meet the program. It has to function properly. 
Secondly, it has to meet code. We have to ensure that when we deliver a, a project that it meets the code. It doesn't make sense for me to deliver a project that meets scope, schedule, and budget, but doesn't, but but's out of code as soon as you take it over. And then the last thing for me has got to be able to be maintained by the maintenance crew, by the by the facilities management team. So I think that's been my approach in trying to deliver high quality projects to clinicians so they cannot be distracted about what we do or or, or my facility. Is in addition to the scope, schedule, budget, it has to function, it has to meet code, and it has to be able to be maintained. Now, most folks say, hey, Gary, that's just given. We do that. But sometimes if you don't specify that, if you don't spell those things out, I've been I've been a part of receiving projects that have been incomplete, and I've been a part of delivering projects that have been incomplete. So sometimes you have to spell and say those things out specifically. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, you have to be specific, especially on two and three, the code and the maintenance. How many times, you know, and you have control over it now, but in the past, how many times did you get a project turned over to you? And on day one, you're finding things that are out of, either out of code compliance or just from a maintenance perspective. I mean, there's a lot of organizations that are still really siloed between their facility operations and their construction. So you're right. If you're not spot, I mean, if you're not specific in what you're looking for, you're going to have problems once you open. Pete, we run into that. We run into that so often. And, and, and it's so, I think hospitals who don't have design and construction and engineering or maintenance reporting to the same um, position, VP, whatever we want to call it, I, I think they make a terrible mistake because design and construction, if they don't have the same goals, if they don't work closely, they'll constantly deliver projects that, that maintenance cannot maintain. You will have shut off valves a hundred yeah. feet in the air that you can't even access, or you have the wrong via uh, VAVs or whatever you want to call. It. You know, it's just it's just a yeah. big uh, a big mess if you don't work closely. <laughs> and, and and people may not people may say, well, Gary, this is just common sense. But I've worked in hospitals where it, it's been a very antagonistic relationship between yeah. the design and construction team yeah. and the facilities team because they didn't have the same reporting structure or the same person they reported to. Absolutely. It, it, it becomes, becomes um, political. political. It becomes political. You, you, you design and construction takes money, capital dollars, and they do a project. And I'm not saying this is, this happens everywhere, but a lot of the times they would take that money and spend all that money and get, and get the, I'm going to use a football analogy. They would take the football all the way down to the one half yard line. And then they will get off the field and say, okay, maintenance, you guys come in, spend maintenance, spend O&M dollars and get this football across into the end zone. And it just it just drove me crazy that those two departments were so disconnected and had so much politics going on that, you know, when, when I'm looking for when I was looking for this position, one of my one of my criteria was criteria was that I have to have both of these departments reporting to me so I can make sure we're on the same page and we deliver yeah. the hospital the best results we can one, One of the, the um, um, Gary, Gary, I can, I can hear myself. Is there it, just for the first time? I well, I can't hear myself anymore. So whatever you did, it worked. <laughs> I, didn't <do laughs> you, I didn't do anything. Uh, You're bringing uh, up a little bit on on me. Can you? Am I coming through clear on you on your end? Yeah, no, I got you clear. And actually, my I can hear. Yeah, I'm good now too. So, um, I was gonna say. Uh, you had mentioned Gary, good customer service, and you talked about one of the. You know, that's one of your. Um, important uh, pillars of leadership. I know just in our past discussions that, that you, you know, when you're, when you're building your team and, and when you're working, you talk about acting presidential and its importance in facilities management. What is acting presidential as it relates to facilities management and how does that influence your management style? So for me, pres being presidential uh, in your organization is, is, is the following. A, a, a large hospital for me is like a small country and you have all of these different people. And even though I may not be the CEO or the president of the organization, being the owner of the facility is my facility. People just work there. People get treatment there and people just get visitors come there. But that's actually my facility. So I represent everyone who steps foot into that facility or that country. And so I have to I have to be a, a a leader of all, a server of all, 
I can't I can't allow politics, um, infighting or uh, budget concerns or whatever the case may be. I cannot allow those things to that to distract me from taking care of everyone that steps foot into that organization. And that means I'm not going to fight with my customers. I'm not going to fight with the visitors. I'm not going to fight with the executives. I'm not going to fight with the family members. We're going to go in there and we're going to listen. If we if we're getting chewed out, we're going to get chewed out and we're going to take it back and learn if we deserved it. Hey, great. If we didn't deserve it, we're still going to try to go and figure out how do we change that going forward. So being presidential for me is acting in such a way where you represent everyone that walks into your facility. You represent them well. You serve them well and you try to meet their expectations as best as you can. And and you try to do that responsibly. And so for me, it's not fighting, it's not arguing, it's, it's just getting the job done and representing everyone that walks into that facility to the best of your ability. And how do, how is that message received within your departments? And do you have to do any or provide any supplemental training to them for them to feel more comfortable. And I put that, I mean, as you know, sometimes people in facilities, they do their job, they do it in the background. They don't really want attention. They just get it done and they're uncomfortable either communicating or being a focus. So do you have to do any supplemental training or anything to, to help your staff come up to that level where you want them to be? No, I wouldn't call it training. What I have to do is set the expectation that that this is what I expect. This is how I expect you to behave. This is how I expect you to act. This is how I expect your customer service to be. And then the main thing I have to do is communicate with my team on a regular basis. I have to show them from from the and I don't mean this in a in a in a, in a negative way or in a bad way from the person who who maybe has the lowest title position on the team. To the person who has the highest position on the title position, I have to show them how their job directly affects patient care. And once I tie that to them and then I show them the results on a regular basis, this is this is how we affect patient care. This is how we impact patient safety. This is how we impact family uh, family experience or, or or patient and family experience as they come into the hospital. Once I can communicate with them on a regular basis and show them how important our job is, how important their job is from the lowest level job on the team to whatever the, the, the highest level job may be. I can tie how what we do and our results directly impact patient care and the bottom line for this hospital. And so once you communicate that on a regular basis, people people start to build a sense of pride in terms of you mean to tell me if I continue to behave and act this way, we're saving this amount of money. We're we're impacting uh, this type of, of care. This is the impact we're having on the hospital's bottom line, the operations bottom uh, operating margin. Absolutely. When you show folks how you go through contracts, how you minimize contract spending, how we can't afford to be, how we're we are just a we're a support organization, a port service organization. We have to do our job and do our job well. Otherwise, some hospitals will consider con- contracting our services out, which a lot of hospitals have done across this country. But if yeah. I show my folks how to how their job directly affects and benefits patient care, uh, they typically understand and, 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 and get on board. Great. Excellent. Um, one last healthcare-based question, and then we'll just switch gears uh, a little bit. When you're transition into healthcare, um, are you pleased that you made the transition into healthcare? And as you've worked in it now for obviously a while, and you're at a VP level and have been at VP levels before, is there anything that you did not expect to find in healthcare, but you found, and that can be a pleasant surprise and not so pleasant surprise. Is there anything that has surprised you as you've gone in depth into your healthcare facility management career? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. What I'll tell you is this: so coming from a coming from a a utility power plant, working in power plants my entire career, the safety conscious and safety focus was through the roof. It was it was pretty extreme. Basically, when you're working in a power plant you, you, and you're producing electricity, you have a controlled explosion inside this huge boiler. Mm-hmm. And if things go wrong, you know, it can be it can be pretty detrimental to to people, to the organization, to the bottom line. Uh, people can die. So when I left there thinking, man, if our safety focus and safety conscious here, 
is extreme. When, if, when I get to healthcare, it's going to be just through the roof. You're not gonna, even going to be able to get your do- job done because you're going to have so many requirements and so many things you have to do to keep pe- patients safe. But when I got here, I found that that just wasn't the case. <laughs> so <laughs> people people weren't as people's safety conscious and safety focus wasn't as, as off the charts as I expected. And I found myself bringing in a different perspective saying, hey, we need to address this. Hey, we need to address that. Where most folks would just overlook those things because it's just what they have done, you know, for a long time. So, you know, I would say that was probably the biggest surprise for me that that coming into a place where you, where your primary job is to take care of sick people, that the safety, the, the safety piece was not uh, where I thought it thought it, the, the attitudes weren't where I thought they should have been. And the second most surprising thing is we kind of hit on a little bit more was just the lack of diversity in the um, in the executive or administrative um, ranks or positions uh, is he- it's it was heavily facilities heavily dominated by older white men. Not a lot of women, not a lot of people of color. And I was just really surprised by that, that um, uh, just the lack of diversity. So, um, yeah, yeah, those are the two things that really kind of shocked me and surprised me. Excellent. Um, You know, sometimes really simple language, it, it works most effectively. And when you said controlled explosion, those two words perfectly described it. I mean, it's so simple. But yet it conveys something that, if gone unchecked, can be massive um, and create a massive problem. I like the controlled explosion. Yeah, it could be catastrophic. (laughs) Yep, yep. So let's change gears a little bit, Uh, Gary. um, You're a board member for the African Children's Mission. You also volunteer down in Uganda. Let's get a little bit into that. What is the African Children's Mission? So African Children's Mission is an organization that was founded uh, by a guy named Wayne Daniel back in 1983. Um, Here's a guy who gave up his business in Birmingham, Alabama, and moved to uh, Kenya, East Africa, Kenya, to begin an organization that took in homeless kids, educated those kids, and fed those kids. He expanded from Kenya into Uganda in in about five, five years later. And um, began the same the same type of, of programs. And now uh, we, he he, moved, he built this organization from serving two or three schools in this in this one particular community to having almost 50 schools that we serve uh, homeless kids as well as educate those children as well. So we so this organization raises money, of course, in the United States to to sponsor children, to give them an education and also give them food for for that particular day. And um, I'm a board member on this organization. It's, it's a very important part of, of my life and what I do. Uh, I've been there, as you said, since 2009. And um, I can't see myself um, not ever being associated with this organization. So it's just a one. It's a wonderful organization that just serves the people of Uganda who are very well. We serve is very poor. Uh, very destitute, uh, lots of issues, lots of problems, and um, and lots of homeless kids, kids who are, are parentless or, or orphan kids who are who have parents that they've lost to AIDS and HIV over the years. So uh, it's it's an organization that I love, and it's an organization that I, I enjoy serving on um, on a regular basis. Interesting. So I. You know, answer.com, and I don't know how reliable any of this is, says that Uganda is 91,136 square miles and that the closest U.S. state to that in size is Oregon. So with that said, with that as a little background for people who may not know the size of Uganda, how would you describe um, life there, Gary? And and when you're down there volunteering, what are you doing? Yeah, so what, how I would describe Uganda is is – from a from a economic standpoint, first you have the have and you have the have nots. Um, that's that's pretty much how it is. The people who have they're they're fine. They live life normally. If you visit the the city of the capital of the capital city of Kampala, basically you wouldn't find it much different from most other cities that you visit around the world, except it may be a little bit little bit more primitive, a little bit less up to date. Lots of smog. 
you know, uh, lots of people, mm-hmm. lots of old cars, imported cars and stuff like that. But it's really busy, hustling, bustling. You know, economy may not be as big or, or as, as robust as most people, but, but it's pretty typical. Then you leave and you go into the villages, uh, the different areas surrounding the cities where you have the have nots. And, and for those people out there, it's, very, it's a very tough life. Uh, many have no electricity, no running water. Uh, it's a very primitive, primitive lifestyle. You, there are there because of because there is no refrigeration and stuff like that. People have to get food on a daily on a daily basis. They have to wow. find jobs where they can eat on a daily basis. Because if you if you want to have meat, you have to eat meat that day. You can't. There's no place to store it. So if you want to get things like dry beans and dry rice, yeah, you can keep things like that for a day or two or three. But if you want to have other other type things, you have to get those things on, on a daily basis. Life is tough. There are no jobs out in the in the in the villages. People people typically make a living by doing farming. But if, if you don't own land, if you don't have money to to buy land, then you can't do farm farming. People tip, typically average about earnings is about a dollar a day. And uh, women, those are men, women is even less than that. So. Uh, it's a very it's a very tough life, a, a very hard life out there. So when we go out there, what we try to do is my sons and I. So I take my sons. I've been taking my sons for the last um, since 2017. And so what we do is when we're here in the United States, we, we particularly raise money on our own, not through ACM, not through African Children's Mission. But although when we go, we go through them, but we raise money on our own to repair wells. Um, to to put to put wells back in services in certain villages that may have uh, their water pumps or their piping uh, broken. We we raise money to fix wells, but we also raise money to build small houses for people. And I would say those are probably the two primary projects that we do over there. We fix wells to give villages water, a source of water, as opposed to having them walk two, three, and four miles and then carrying heavy um, jerry cans of water back to their homes. And we try to build homes for people who may be, um, I'll give you an example of a family being abandoned by the father. Mother passes away and you've got a child 13 years old trying to take care of three or four uh, small siblings. And they're living in a, in a tent made out of tarp, tarps and sticks. And so you go in and you try to find people like that and you build those those folks homes. You sponsor those children and you try to check on those folks on a regular basis. So that's the type of work that my sons and I do when we go over there. All right. So there's a lot there. I want to go back to one of the to follow up on a number. Of, but I just want to go back to kind of that first thing you talked about getting food on a daily basis for folks and you know how everything perishes relative to food. Are there supermarkets? Where do people go to buy food on a daily basis? So most most people go to so you have little small um, cities close by these villages, not cities, little small um, areas. I don't know what you call them that that may have places you can go and buy meat and and um, you know rice or or vegetables, but but you know those places can be very far away. So you still have to either either walk ten miles. And I'm not exaggerating. Walk 10 miles, 15 miles or whatever to these little small, small uh, municipal areas uh, and walk back um, or try to get someone to take you or, or, or pay for travel, which if you don't have money to buy food, you really don't have money to, to, to pay for travel or transportation. Yeah. So uh, people typically walk uh, 10 uh, miles or less or a little bit more. They go to these little small municipal, I hate to call them cities because they're not, they're, they're more of a district, like a small little district where they've set up and I, they're not supermarkets. They're just little shops, mm-hmm. you know, they're not, and they're, it's not like you can go there and go into a place and get eggs or milk. No, you no, that's not going to happen. You can go there and you can buy some meat that they just killed and it's hanging up outside flies everywhere. I hate to say that but it's warm. It's not. But they'll sell that meat throughout the day and people will take it in and take it back home and they'll cook it that day. So there, there are small little districts that people can walk to to get the necessities that they need. But it's not a supermarket. It's not like living in one of the big cities there. 
Wow. What is the, um, the climate like there? Do they get, do, do they have water issues or do they get enough precipitation falling? Um, yeah, they, they're on the equator. So it's a tropical climate. Okay. But, um, so they get water. Of course, people, people try to implement, um, rain catching systems as best they mm-hmm. can to use that water. But, um, still it's easier to go to a well because sometimes it, it, you know, you have a rainy season there and you have a dry season there. And when in the dry season, when it's not raining, you need to hit, you need to, you need the opportunity to, to go to those wells just so you can survive. And in the rainy season, of course, there's plenty of rain. But unlike here in, in the United States, in most places, we have four seasons. Well, that's not the case over there. They have two seasons, a wet season and a dry season. And uh, in the dry season, it can become very tough. How long is the how long are those two seasons were up usually? Like six months each. Oh, okay, okay. So you talked about bringing your sons down there. You have three sons. Just from before we talk about their experiences down there, just from a, a parenting perspective, and I have children as well. Was it difficult for you to convince your sons to go down with you? Were they were they excited to do it, or did you have to drag them? What was what's that like? Because I, I can't imagine my kids saying, "Hey, Dad, I'm going to go with you." <laughs> but what was that like for you? Hopefully, your boys are different. I don't know. <laughs> kids no, are kids. I, I promise you, they're they're probably just like their kids. <laughs> but uh, like everybody else's kids, they're they're. Yeah. It, it didn't take a lot of convincing. They knew that Dad had been going over there for a lot of times, a, a long time. Uh, on several occasions and and they see the pictures they they Mm -hmm. pictures they see so so i'm not going to make it like it's all bad when we when we go over there we do a lot of work but the last two days we are there we go on a safari Hmm. and and so the kids see those pictures of elephants and lions and giraffes and crocodiles and hippos and they're like dad i i want to go do that so you know (laughs) you kind of sell them on the all the good things that you do at the end to get them to go over there. But once they get there, and I've always tried to teach my boys, um, you know, one lesson in life, one main lesson in life. Son, or, or boys, the way you are happy in my, the way you're happy in life is to not focus on serving your own self-interest, but serving other people. If you focus on other people and you help them, you tend to be more happier than worrying about yourself and what you don't have. So I had always taught them those lessons that the, the, the more you think about what you want and what you don't have, the more uh, unhappy you will be. But when you think about how you can help and serve other people, you know, I think the more happy you are. So I had always taught them those lessons. And as a way to get them to put that into practice, we just had been talking about one day they would go over there with me. And they were pretty excited about going. Uh, they don't like the flights. Of course, the flight is a 24-hour flight to get there, a 24-hour flight to get back. You you have two two legs. First leg is about 15 hours from the U.S. to somewhere in the, in either Europe or in the Middle East. And then you have about a seven-hour flight from either one of those wow. places. So it's 24-hour uh, flight with layovers and all that. So So pretty long. But when you get there and you do all the work and you see all the folks that you can help, uh, you know, the reward is so much more beneficial. And so it is so much outweighs the the cons of, of the long flight. You talked about the last two days you go on the safari. How long do you typically go for? Say that again. How long do you typically say that one more time, Pete? How long are you usually in Uganda for? You talked about the last two days you you go on the safari. Are you there for two weeks, or what's what's your duration for time there working? For, for us, it's for us it's uh, fourteen to twenty one days. We're there. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So uh, that's a long. Yeah, it's a long time. We do a lot of work there, and uh, yeah, it's a it's a lot of a lot of work and a lot of serving, and so by the time you're you're done, you're ready to you're ready to relax a little bit. So. Yeah, I'm sure uh, you- 14, 14 to, to, to 21 days. And how are you received by the local population when you're working there? Are they they happy to see you because they know you're you're making a difference for them? What's that like? Yeah, I, I think so. I, I think when I'm there, we're we're almost like many rock stars over there, man. I mean, we we go and, and because we do so much, people and we've been going so long, people know us now. When we first, when I first went over there, you know, Pete, I'm a six foot one, 285 pound guy. 
I mean, yeah. not a lot of Africans. A lot of these people are very small, short, tiny. And, and, and so although I look like them, they knew I was different. <laughs> so they yeah. would stare at me and say, like, almost look at me like, man, what is what is that? You know? <laughs> and then when I would speak, they would be they would say, oh, my God, he, he looks like us, but he talks like, you know, a, a foreigner. You know, <laughs> he's yes. like yes. a foreigner, but he looks like us. What? What? And, and I, I actually had people ask me, man, what are you, sir? What are you? And I really? Have, yeah. I have to explain to them. I'm talking about people in the villages now. These are people who who don't have internet access to Internet and information. I'm not talking about folks in the city. So when you're deep out in the bush or the villages and people don't know history. And so you have to explain to them how because they ask you, are you what are you? Are you African? And you say, well, I'm African-American. They say, well, what does that mean? And you have mm. to explain to them how how slaves were taken from there and taken to America. And although we're related ancestrally, you know, you know, we're different. We're still different. And so they some of them have never heard of that, have never heard of slaves and Nelson Mandela and Martin Luther King. A lot of those folks have no idea who those people are. Of course, the folks in the city, they do. But it's just, you know, it's, it's different. It's just different. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's in some ways, it's almost like you're going back in time from what you've just described. It's very primitive. Very. Primitive. Yeah. So when you, um, you know, when you either um, repair a well, when you build a house, give us a sense of the, the scope of the well, how far down you go in, how difficult is it for a house? I mean, I'm sure, you know, you talk about house, it's probably nothing like people would be envisioning for here. W what are those things? What, what is a well and what is a house in Uganda? Yeah, so the wells that we repair um, typically have been about 500 bucks to repair. So basically it's, a, it's just a pump, a, a very simple plunge air plunge pump where you 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 suction you suck up the water you push out the air and, and and typically you have that at the bottom of the deepest well that we worked on was 200 feet deep huh. and so huh. it's either 200 feet deep or less tip i think the the least the the least amount of depth we had was 120 feet so you're talking from anywhere from 100 to 200 feet uh foot deep well and we basically raised 500 bucks to go in and buy all new piping and a, and a brand new pump, basically. And instead of trying to repair piping, we take all the old piping out, put new piping and a new pump in. And then you've got a functioning well for the next 20 years or so, unless unless the seals break. And when I say we build a house, you know, Pete, I don't want to I don't want to mislead anybody. We're, we're talking sure. about mud and sticks. You, you, yep. you dig dirt, you put it on a big pile. Uh, you go and you get sticks out of the bush and you find the right size and you frame up a house um, using sticks. Then you go and haul water, bring it to where you've dug up the dirt. You take your shoes off, you add a little water and you everybody gets in and just start stumping around in the mud. And you make mud and then you just go plaster it on onto the stick frame and you let wow. it let it dry. And so we're not talking. And that typically costs about 200 bucks. So we raise 500 bucks for the wells. 200 bucks to build houses for people. Wow. And how many can you do typically when you're over there? We try to do one well a day and two houses a week. Wow. You guys are busting, huh? Yeah. Um, where do you, where do you stay when you're there? So we, we have very good, you know, so the, the combinations are very nice. When Wayne Daniel, uh, who passed away a couple of years ago, um, when he when he went there, he built these he built these very nice dormitories for U.S. visitors to come and serve because he knew that, you know, we're not Americans are not used to living with no showers, no toilets and stuff like that. So so he has these very nice accommodations over there that's built. I mean, you have your own showers, you have your own toilets. And then we have an organization that we partner with that does all of the cooking and they cook you American meals. Now you would think that you would go over there and lose weight because you're working and you're not, I mean, every time I go there, I gain four or five, 10 pounds because the food is just so good. And because we have people over there who are cooking food, American style food for us. So uh, the food is great. The accommodations are great. Now, when I first started going over there, the accommodations weren't as good, but now it's like really like a five-star hotel almost. Wow. Yeah, it's really nice. Yeah, that is. That is. And so just so 
so people know, I'm speaking with Gary Scott. Gary's vice president of hospital services at the University of Vermont Medical Center in Burlington, Vermont. So the first half of the podcast, we talked about healthcare facilities management and some of the issues that we're facing today. Now we're talking about Gary's work with the African Children's Mission over in Uganda. And if people are interested, um, the website to learn more is africanchildrensmission.org. Um, you can help support their work. And Gary, if you could also, and I can put a link to it as well, um, how would people, if they wanted to volunteer, or volunteer, if they wanted to um, donate to your specific work that you do with your sons, how, how could people do that? Yeah, so there are there are a couple of ways. I don't I don't have them with me right now, but I can send you those instructions. Yeah. So if they and if want- Gary if Gary sends me those, I'll make sure that I put them up too. But I I interrupted you, so please go yeah, ahead. Yeah. So so there there are there are ways you can donate specifically to AfricanChildrensMission.org. You can go to our webpage and donate through that. Or if you want to donate through the work that my sons and I do, we have two different ways. We we work with a with the organization that you can donate through the National Christian Foundation. But we also work with an organization called the International Foundation. So for, for, for those, so for us, or for those who may not want to be associated with any kind of religious organization, for us, it's not about uh, religion and, and religious you know, affiliations. For us, it's about serving. So I have two particular accounts with both of, with both of these organizations, the National Christian Foundation, as well as the International Foundation that I'll send you to if people want to want to donate to what we do over there. Absolutely, and I will, uh, I will link to those so that people have them. Um, through your, you know, your work there over the years, Gary, is there a, a story that, or or a group of people that particularly stick out in your mind from you know from your years of working over in Uganda? Well, you know, to be honest with you, Pete, you know, I've been going so long. I have I have about thirteen sponsored kids. Wow. And so I have right now I have four girls who are in college. They're college age girls right now. And of course, those girls are are everything to me. Those are the the, the people who um, I chat with on a daily basis that I, I care for, provide upkeep for um, tuition, room and board. Those girls, you know, I, I'm a father of three sons and. You know, boys love their mothers, but man, those girls love their daddy. Yeah. <laughs> I've got two and two, so you're right. There's a difference. There's a difference. I've yeah. been I've been here I've been here alone the last two weeks in Vermont, um, and and my sons I've only heard from them one time since I've been here. My girls call and check on me every single day. And so, you know, so that I have a lot of people over there that I'm connected to, but my daughters uh, are, are what's most important to me right now. And I have, a, I have, as I said, I have those daughters and then I have about nine other sponsored kids that we just um, send support. We pay for their education. When I say sponsor, we basically pay for them to go to school and we provide upkeep for them. So, of course, I have those relationships and those connections that um, that I've made over the years. But but for me, it's, it's my girls. It's my daughters, man. Is there a way um, did you get connected with your daughters through your volunteer work in, in, in you know, creating the, the wells or the houses and you met you met them along the way and over the years developed a relationship? How did that develop? Yeah. So so basically, to be honest with you, basically. Um, going over there for a long time, you, 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 you build relationships. And so there was a pastor who, who used to work there, but he, he's, he's kind of, he's moved on to a, a, a better role. He used to work for our organization, African Children's Mission. He introduced me to a family of women, uh, three sisters who had many kids and they were just destitute. And so my oldest son was so moved that he wanted to adopt the entire family. So we did. We, we adopted this one of these three women and all of their kids. And so we, we provide support for them. Well, my son does. He works and he sends them 300 U.S. bucks a month um, to help take care of that huge. It's a large family. But the oldest girl who is actually my son's age, they became um, sister and brother very close. So as a result of that, we adopted her as my daughter. Wow. And she had three friends that that just she was like, Dad, these are my friends. And so those three girls became my daughters just by default. 
And and now I love those girls just as much as I love the oldest girl. And I, there really is no difference between between the oldest and the other three, except that the baby girl has me wrapped around her fingers and she knows that. So <laughs> how how old is the baby girl? She just turned twenty on, on December thirty first. Wow. So what what are their ages? What are their ages, Gary? Twenty to what? Twenty to twenty one. So you have a twenty, the, the baby girl is twenty, the next is twenty, then I have a uh, 21 and then 2021. 20, so two 20-year-olds and two 21-year-olds. But you have to realize that these girls, because of money, they can't go to school every year like we do here. School's not free. So if you don't have the money, you sit out a year. So a lot of these girls, like the oldest girl, she didn't graduate high school until a couple of years ago when she was 19. She was already 19. you know. And uh, she has a sister right now who is like a 10th grader who's 20 years old. Because she set out for two or three years. How much do they have to pay for a year of schooling? It's not much. So, so it's it's um to sponsor a child is for schooling. It's like thirty bucks a month. So that takes care of their schooling. For my daughter, the oldest girl who goes to college, it's eight hundred bucks a year, four hundred bucks a term for her to go to to university now. So it's not a lot. Yep. Do they is is university um located near them? Are there a lot of options for university schools? Yeah, they have a couple of options in the city. They have um, what they call McCary University, which is probably their biggest and most prestigious university. And then they have Kampala International University, KIU. And they have other universities as well. But those are two that I'm familiar with. And it just depends on your academic performance coming out of what they call secondary school, which is the equivalent to our high school. Depending on your academic performance is where you can go. If you don't perform well, you probably won't get into McCary. But if you if you don't perform well, there are still options for you to go and get diplomas and then get into a degree, a degree program university. Wow. Awesome. So I have three girls at McCary and one girl at KIU. So the three girls performed very well. One of them, one of them did not because she was just very poor, destitute, worried about her mom, you know, not having anything. So now she has hope. Now she has an opportunity to go to school and she's performing very well. Wow. That's, that's, that's great. Great work, Gary. And let's just, um, we're coming up close to the time. So I just want to, one final question. Um, and I want to wrap it back into facilities management a bit, um, relative to your work in Uganda. So you're gone, say anywhere from two to three weeks. Um, I'm imagining the organizations you've worked for have rightly supported that endeavor. But what is when you're gone, I'm imagining that and maybe in the hotel you're connected, but you're you're pretty much out of pocket. How do how do your teams work? How do you set your teams up to be successful in your absence? Yeah, so of course we we um we can't communicate like we typically communicate here in the US. So I have to communicate on an app called WhatsApp. And because the the time is such a big difference, eight hours difference, typically when I'm up, people are asleep here and vice versa. So we communicate, I communicate with my team and I stay informed via WhatsApp. And although we may not talk to each other every day, we communicate via WhatsApp almost pretty, pretty much daily. And if I, if I, if there's something critical that I need to be involved in, they let me know. And then I can I can go somewhere and get service and we can have a phone. We can schedule a phone call that's convenient for them. It may be six o'clock in the morning here, three o'clock in the afternoon for me there. But we typically work it out like that. So I'm, I'm always connected via WhatsApp with what's going on at the hospital. And if there is an urgent issue that I need to address, we find a way to have a better connection and we make phone calls that way and we talk that way. So it's typically not an issue. Uh, I'm always connected to this, this hospital. Even when I'm on vacation here in the States, I'm always connected when I'm overseas, I'm still connected via WhatsApp. Amazing. I'm sure you, you've probably seen some good technical advances over the years. Yeah, Pete, you broke up on me. I'm sorry about that, sir. Oh, no problem. I was just saying you've probably seen some great technical advances over the years and your ability to communicate and, and stay connected at least a little bit more. Oh, yeah, when I first started going, there was no way you could connect yeah. unless you went to the city. 
But now we have internet at, at the in the actual villages. Uh, internet, we call it the internet tree. You go stand by this one tree on, <laughs> on a big termite mound, and you can get one or two bars and, and have a WhatsApp conversation. So, yeah, we we've, uh, we've got a little internet, a little bit better at communicating on the ranch. <laughs> the internet tree. That's great. Um, Gary Scott, thank you so much for your time this morning. I really appreciate it. Pete, it's been a pleasure. I, I, I really enjoyed it, and I hope that we can do this again uh, whenever you're, whenever you have an opening. It was really pleasurable. <laughs> absolutely, thank absolutely. So, okay. thank you for having me, sir. My pleasure, my pleasure. So, this is Peter Martin. That's Gary Scott. This is the High Reliability Podcast, and I will, um, if you're looking for ways to donate, <clears throat> excuse me, I will put um, the links to. Gary specifically, and then to the African um, Children's Mission, so you can uh, so you can donate. Thank you so much again, Peter Martin, for the High Reliability Podcast. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.